Today, Ken Hammond will be presenting the first lecture on the beginnings of the revolution, the founding of the CCP, the first united front, the split with the Kuomintang, the rural strategy, the Zhongzi Soviet, and the Long March. Welcome, Ken. Okay, week two, part one. All right. Well, greetings, comrades. Glad to be back with you uh, this week. Um, we have a lot of uh, material to cover, obviously, and uh, so I want to uh, jump in. But uh, uh, just to remind you, um, uh, as, as you just heard as well, last week we basically uh, uh, talked about the, the, the century plus uh, during which China went from, uh, you know, its sort of leading role in the global economy and, and its position as a, as a powerful and respected uh, uh, state uh, to uh, its position by the early 20th century as a, as a, uh, a relatively weak and oppressed uh, country. Uh, the onslaught of Western imperialism, first uh, with the British, uh, the Opium War and all that, and then uh, the erosion and destruction of China's domestic economy in the, in the face of, uh, of imperialist imports and things like that, um, produced a situation in which uh, uh, China found itself by the early 20th century in, in deep crises, both in terms of its interaction with uh, the outside world and the, the pressures of imperialism, but also in terms of, uh, of the inadequacies of the existing order uh, and, uh, and the, the turmoil for transformation and change within China. And that leads to the overthrow of the imperial state in 1911, 1912, and the somewhat abortive efforts in the teens to try to establish a modern uh, sort of liberal bourgeois democratic republic that falls apart fairly quickly. And by the end of uh, the, the second decade of the 20th century, by the time we got, we got to 1919 last week, um, all kinds of, of forces are contending within China. Uh, you have the warlords who are dominating different regions of the country. You have uh, supposedly the, uh, the Republican government uh, based in Beijing, uh, not very functional outside of the immediate environs of the city. You have the nationalists in their enclave in the far south in Guangdong province. Uh, but you also have the beginnings of what will emerge as the, the Chinese revolution, the real transformation, the real creation of the new China. So I want to talk about a number of things in this uh, in this first part of class today uh, to take us through this process from the from the very origins of the revolutionary movement up through one of its more dramatic and traumatic episodes, which was the Long March uh, in 1935-1936. So we'll we'll go through the first part of our period here uh, as expeditiously as we can. The beginnings of the revolution. What we're talking about here is is uh, how uh, at the end of the of the teens, uh, uh, in response to to the, the growing crises within China, but also taking note of developments in the wider world, such as the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, the betrayal of China by the Western liberal democracies at uh, at the Versailles Peace Conference after World War One. Many young people, educated people in China, uh, and members of trade unions, workers, uh, all kinds of folks began to cast about, to look around for new ways of approaching China's problems. And one of the uh, very important areas that they began to look at was Marxism. 
And uh, uh, there had been uh, some vague or general awareness of, of socialist, anarchist, Marxist ideas before this. But the crises of, of the end of World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution, all this stuff, uh, really focused people's uh, attention. And Marxism began to be studied more seriously. And uh, uh, groups across the country uh, began to come together. Uh, I, I illustrate here uh, just three people who were uh, critical in these early stages of development. Chen Dushou and Li Dajiao uh, were both uh, already pretty well established political figures uh, moving uh, uh, to, to the left, embracing uh, Marxism and communism as ideas. Mao Zedong was a younger fellow at this point, um, actually working in the library at uh, Beijing University up in the capital. And, um, but, but taking part in these discussions, taking part in the, uh, in the study of Marxism, little groups would get together and read things like the manifesto and translations of different texts. Those Marxist reading groups um, began to communicate with one another. People traveled around between different parts of the country, uh, groups in different cities, groups in different areas uh, would, would, uh, would write, write to each other. Publications began to appear, which circulated. So there was a very lively intellectual uh, process going on of, of learning about Marxism. In that context, and this is 1919, 1920, uh, in that context, um, agents, uh, uh, delegates from the uh, Communist International, the um, what's sometimes called the Third International, the organization based in Moscow, based in the Soviet Union, that uh, was had as its objective helping uh, uh, people um, helping people in, in countries around the world that were struggling to develop revolutionary anti-imperialist movements to help them with their work. And so a few agents uh, were sent out from Moscow to China, and they worked with these Marxist reading groups to uh, try to move towards a more uh, national organization, a stronger focus, and a, uh, a, 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 you know, to try to develop a revolutionary program for China. And that results in uh, the first Congress of the Chinese Communist Party being held in Shanghai uh, in July of 1921. In some ways, uh, to, you know, we, we call this the first Congress, and that's what it was. There were actually only 12 people in attendance. Uh, uh, the, the number of people, the number of comrades who could assemble at that particular point at that particular time, relatively small. But already, even at the time the Congress was founded, there were thousands of people ready to join the party who who did. Uh, and over the next couple of years, uh, the ranks of the party grew in cities, in towns, in factories, in universities, all across China. And that, uh, that, that gives an organizational form uh, and, a, and a sort of center for, for, for activism and, and, and organizing uh, a, real, a real concrete existence there in China for the first time. At the same time that the party was being founded in China, interestingly, a, a branch, a second part of the Chinese Communist Party was also founded in France. Many young Chinese had gone to France during World War I uh, as part of, of assistance that China provided to the Allies uh, during the war. Um, many of them worked in, uh, in factories in France, uh, in replacing Frenchmen who had gone off to die in the trenches. Um, 
And by doing so, by being there and working, uh, a lot of them worked at the Renault factory right outside of Paris, um, they became exposed to French trade unionism. They met members of the French Communist Party. And so when uh, the Communist Party was being established in, uh, in China, in Shanghai, uh, a parallel uh, founding uh, meeting was held in Paris, uh, and amongst the, the comrades who attended that were, were these two, uh, on the right, uh, the young Zhou Enlai, and on the left, Deng Xiaoping, both of whom uh, had uh, been part of this uh, uh, workers' program in, in, uh, in France during the war. Uh, they both were founding members of the Chinese Communist Party and, and of course, uh, remained uh, 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 very important in the ongoing struggle from from then on. Uh, most of these comrades, of course, came back to uh, to China in the course of uh, of things. Although some, like both Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai, spent time in the Soviet Union as well, studying there, learning about uh, uh, Marxism and and communism in both theory and practice uh, uh, there. What happens in these in these first years of the 1920s? Um, is that uh, the, the, the Communist International, the Third International, uh, uh, their perspective on the situation in China, and we'll talk about this a little more in a minute with the next slide, was that what China needed, the, the stage of development that China was at, was the stage of the bourgeois democratic revolution, a national revolution to oppose imperialism, but one in which the, the, the sort of class content would be that of the development of, of the bourgeois economy, the development of the capitalist economy. Only with the development of the capitalist economy, it was felt, um, would a, a, a base of working class uh, proletarians emerge that would then be uh, the foundation for a revolutionary movement towards socialism and communism. Um, and so the, the advisors from the international worked both with the, the nascent communist party, but also with the Guomindang, the nationalist party. They wanted to position the nationalists as a revolutionary anti-imperialist party. And Sun Yat-sen, the founder of the nationalist movement, was open to this, was amenable to this, worked with uh, the, the, the Communist International Advisors. And the Guomindang itself was reorganized uh, along the same lines as the Communist Party, as a Leninist party. Um, but as that process went forward, um, other elements within the Nationalist Party uh, were not entirely uh, in agreement with this perspective, most particularly uh, Chiang Kai-shek, who we see here in the picture standing next to Sun Yat-sen uh, sitting. Now, at this point, uh, the province of Guangdong and the city of Guangzhou down in the far south were the power base of the Nationalists. That's where the Wanpua Military Academy was established, of which Chiang Kai-shek became the, uh, the commandant. Uh, so he presided over the development of the Nationalist uh, Army, and that gave him a very strong position within the Nationalist Party, which we'll, we'll see how that plays out in just a few minutes. The result of this process was that in 1923, um, the, uh, the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party formed what's called the First United Front. That is to say, they agreed that they would work together um, even though the, the, the Communist Party, of course, was a party dedicated to proletarian revolution, and the Nationalist Party was a, a bourgeois nationalist party, but with an anti-imperialist program. So 
The Comintern, the Communist International agents uh, had urged this, this cooperation and unity, and in 1923, that agreement is reached, and members of the Communist Party would remain members of the Communist Party, but they would also join the Nationalist Party and work within the Nationalist Party. So the Communist Party would retain its own autonomous identity, but they would collaborate with and work within the structures of the Nationalist Party, uh, which these advisors felt was kind of kind of the mainstream. Um, a, an example of what that meant in practice was uh, can be seen in, in, with Mao Zedong himself, because Mao. Um, who had been at the at the founding Congress of the party and, and was dedicated to the to the Communist Party, uh, joins the Nationalist Party and in fact becomes uh, a bureau chief, leader of a particular unit within the Nationalist Party, in charge of work in the countryside. And this is the period, uh, 1924, 25, that he spends in Hunan province in central China, which was his home province, um, working with <clears throat> peasant unions, farmers unions, uh, in organizing the, the rural uh, uh, proletariat, the rural uh, uh, agricultural workers. Okay, so it's during this united front that the two parties collaborate, uh, but the communists continue to uh, to retain their own identity, and they have, of course, their own long-term agenda, which diverges from that uh, of the nationalists. Okay. In 1926, well, uh, Sun Yat-sen dies in 1925, and after some some jostling within the leadership of the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek emerges as uh, the strongman, as the leader. His position uh, as commandant of the military academy meant that most of the officers within the Nationalist Army had uh, personal connections and loyalties to him, and that gave him a very, very strong position within the Nationalist Party leadership. Now, Chiang Kai-shek had become uh, very, very vehemently anti-communist. He uh, had spent a little time in the Soviet Union, didn't like what he saw. He was very deeply connected to the leading banking and financial families of China. He had married into uh, the Sung family, which was uh, a big banking family based in Shanghai. Um, he had uh, really basically aligned himself and, and the Nationalist Party with the, the, the national banking and financial interests, but also with uh, uh, organized crime syndicates, uh, which were very, very powerful in many of China's cities. Uh, and the Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek uh, uh, sort of loses its militant anti-imperialist uh, posture, which it had uh, maintained under Sun Yat-sen, and becomes essentially an instrument for power uh, for, the, for the, the, the national bourgeoisie and for the rural landlord class. So the, 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 any, any sort of revolutionary dimension or, or progressive dimension of the nationalists is really gone by, by this point. Uh, and that is made crystal clear in the spring of 1927. In 1926, Chiang Kai-shek launches what's called the Northern Expedition, which was a military campaign going north, you can see on the map here, leaving Guangdong province, that dark gray province in the south there, to head north. And the idea was to reunify the country. To, to overcome the fragmentation of China into these warlord power zones and make the Nationalist Party the ruling party of a true 
Chinese government, a true centralized Chinese state. But Chiang Kai-shek felt that uh, he couldn't do that himself if within the Nationalist Party, there was this strong revolutionary movement of, uh, of the communists. And so in April of 1927, as the Nationalist Army, which had succeeded in, in coming about halfway up uh, the country, coming up through central China, uh, bringing different warlords under its control, they had come to the outskirts of Shanghai. But instead of coming into the city where the communists were ready to stage an insurrection uh, to establish the workers' control of Shanghai, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek stop outside of Shanghai, and instead they trigger an anti-communist attack by the organized crime uh, syndicates and by reactionary uh, police authorities within Shanghai. And so uh, literally thousands of communist activists, many of the leaders of the party at that point are killed or arrested and some, some of them executed later in prison. Um, and this is a, it's a devastating blow to the, uh, uh, to the, to the revolutionary uh, forces. Uh, the, the, the Shanghai had been, the, it was the, the, the most industrialized, the most developed uh, uh, capitalist uh, city in China at this point. Uh, it had been the real heartland of, of the party. Uh, and, uh, and now this is, it's a, it's a devastating blow uh, dealt to the party. And, you know, uh, there, there's, should they have seen this coming? Well, perhaps. Um, but even within the leadership of the Nationalist Party, there were those who opposed Chiang Kai-shek's anti-communism and wanted to maintain uh, the United Front. But uh, the, the, the leadership uh, under Chiang uh, the, the core that he controlled, and most particularly the military, uh, meant that he could impose his will even on other elements within the Nationalist Party. Uh, so that's a, that's a complex set of, of politics on the Nationalist side. But the, the massacre of communist uh, fighters and leaders in Shanghai in April of 27 deals a, a severe blow to uh, the fortunes of, of the party at that point. This creates a, 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 a moment, a crisis for the Chinese Communist Party. And, and uh, in all uh, uh, frankness, we have to admit that, that there was a period of the next two or three years where things were, were in turmoil, where there were changes in leadership, where the, the, uh, uh, the question of, uh, of advice from the Soviets uh, played a factor in all this. Um, but the, the, what, what emerged as, as time went by was that uh, the, the, the nationalists had, had asserted control over the big cities, especially Shanghai, and the northern expedition had gone on to the north and, and gone all the way to Beijing and, and had succeeded pretty much in reunifying at least the urban core of the country uh, and establishing itself as a national government. What would the, how should the party respond? How should the revolution go forward? And it's at this point that Mao Zedong, who you can see in this picture, he's the third from the left in the picture. Um, Mao Zedong has become an advocate for, for what we sometimes call the peasant strategy, the rural strategy, uh, all different sorts of ways one could refer to this. Basically, um, 
Mao's work with peasant unions in Hunan in 1924-25 into 26, he had written a, a report about this, the report on the peasant struggle in, in Hunan, um, in which he developed the argument that in the context of China, where with, with 450 million people, over 400 million of whom lived on the land and farmed the land, that uh, they, they, they weren't just a, a, a sort of petty bourgeois peasantry, but that because of the, the historic nature of the Chinese economy, a commercial agriculture in China, they were in effect agricultural proletarians. They were agricultural workers. And Marx talks about this in, in his own writing as well. This isn't something that's a complete innovation by, by Mao. But Mao applies this tactically in the context of China in new uh, and, and certainly innovative ways. And his argument is that in the context of China, it makes sense to rely upon the mass of the people, the agricultural proletarians, to be the foundation for the revolutionary movement. Now, there's a couple of efforts at, at, uh, at armed uprisings trying to seize provincial capitals, uh, Nanchang and Changsha in central China. These fail. Uh, these are not successful uh, movements. They, they seize these cities for brief periods, but then they're driven, driven out by nationalist forces. And as a result of that, by the early 1930s, um, rural base areas, areas out in the countryside in relatively remote areas, um, come to be occupied by, uh, by communist forces. Uh, by this time, the Red Army has been founded under Judah, Judah's leadership. He's the founder of the Red Army and uh, becomes a, a very important leader of the party as well. Um, one of these areas is in the southern part of Jiangxi province, and that becomes the most important of the base areas and uh, becomes a kind of laboratory for uh, developing the revolution. The Jiangxi Soviet is, is located at the, as I say, at the very southern part of Jiangxi province. It spills over a little bit into, into Fujian and Guangdong provinces because it's, it, it's, it's nestled in these mountainous areas. And um, we talk about it as a, as a remote area, uh, which it certainly was, but it was an area that still had a population of over 10 million people. So it's not, uh, you know, a, a few comrades hanging out in a couple of caves. This was a significant territory with a significant population. And within that environment, um, the, the party was able to put together a local government, a Soviet government. And remember the word Soviet as uh, a Russian word, it means councils. So the, the idea of the Soviet is the deliberative council of people, of workers, of peasants, of, of, uh, uh, of areas, you know, neighborhoods or towns, villages, whatever. Um, so the Jiangxi Soviet is a revolutionary government established in this remote and therefore secure area of southern Jiangxi. Um, and it's within this environment that the party starts to try to develop policy approaches to the challenges facing China uh, at this time. Okay. Uh, now, the Jiangxi Soviet is not the only such base area, but it is the largest, and it's where the leadership of the party uh, comes to be concentrated. And at this point, there are still important party leaders, uh, party comrades in the cities, 
uh, underground, in working in trade unions, working behind the scenes in various ways. But the, the real center of gravity within the party is increasingly being concentrated at, uh, uh, it, within, the, within the, the Jiangxi Soviet. So these experiments in social policy, these experiments in revolutionary practice that they, that they carry out, um, there's a lot that goes on, and we don't have time to go through all the details of it, but, but in essence, we can think of it as focusing on two principal areas. First and foremost was land reform. Um, this is a period where Chairman Mao carries out, he's not chairman yet, but where Mao Zedong carries out uh, extensive study on the, the, the class hierarchy in rural China. Uh, uh, who can be relied on as revolutionary elements, who needs to be isolated as counter-revolutionary, all this kind of stuff. And at the heart of that is the land question. How can land be managed in a way that puts it into the hands of the primary producers? Land is the, in an agricultural economy, it's the principal productive resource. It's concentrated in the hands of a tiny elite of landlords. How can that get broken up? How can that be redistributed? Uh, they don't put the most radical policies into effect at this time because they're in the middle of a revolutionary struggle, but they start to experiment. They start to work on, on practices of redistribution, uh, practices of, of uh, cooperativization and things like that. The other big area that they, that they begin to experiment with in terms of policy is family and gender relations. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, uh, the, the communists uh, were, were, of course, uh, uh, believers in, the, in the, the fulfillment of the potentiality of each and every human, men and women. Uh, women hold up half the sky. Uh, that ideal was already being put into practice in, uh, in the Jiangxi period. Uh, marriage reform, uh, reform of, uh, uh, of, of the right of women to own property, divorce practices, all this. They began to experiment, again, not a fully developed, finalized version of this, but they began to work on these, pro uh, uh, these questions, these problems during the Jiangxi period. Not surprisingly, uh, the nationalists were, were horrified by this, and their principal objective was to destroy the communists and to destroy these base areas. You can see on the map here uh, a number of uh, base areas scattered across central and southern China. Uh, the one at the bottom there, the Central Soviet, as it's described there, that's the Jiangxi uh, Soviet. Um, and what they did, what the nationalists did, was to um, launch what they called the encirclement campaigns, or, or what uh, they called the bandit extermination campaigns. And they basically built a network of blockhouses around the perimeter of the Soviet. And every year, they would launch a campaign, and they would push in a little bit tighter and build new blockhouses. And they, they put a serious squeeze on the, on the Jiangxi Soviet, trying to choke it off and destroy it. Um, the communists, of course, the Red Army fought back against this, uh, but the, uh, the power of the nationalists was such that it was very difficult to, uh, to, uh, to drive them away. Uh, they were trapped in this defensive uh, situation, and, uh, and, and, and things, got, things got tighter and tighter. What that leads to is what's known as the Long March. 
The Long March is one of the epic moments in the revolution. It's a moment of, it lasts a year. I mean, I refer to it as a moment, but it's a, it's a, an episode of, of incredible human uh, uh, drama, of incredible uh, uh, sacrifice and suffering, but also of heroic uh, achievement. Essentially, what happens is that in the fall of 1935, um, the leadership of the party makes the decision that, that they can't hold out within the Jiangxi uh, area, uh, uh, that they're going to be defeated there militarily by the overwhelming force of the nationalists, and that they have to uh, escape. Way off in the Northwest uh, is, uh, is uh, another base area around a place called Yan'an uh, in Northern Shanxi province. And uh, they decide that what they're gonna do is, is abandon uh, the Jiangxi position and make their way to Yan'an. Okay. Now they leave a small force, uh, a very heroic force of revolutionary fighters who sacrifice themselves to stay behind and fight against the nationalists at the Jiangxi stronghold in order to allow the main body of comrades to break out. And in October of 35, about 120,000 comrades flee to the southwest from uh, uh, from Jiangxi, from Reijin, the headquarters there in, in, in the Jiangxi Soviet. And over the next year, they walk, and you can see the itinerary here, they walk first to the west, a little southwest, going skirting up the west side of China. And eventually in October of 1936, they arrive uh, in Yan'an, and Yan'an then becomes uh, the new base area. And, uh, and Comrade Sheila is going to talk about that in the next uh, part in just a little bit. But the Long March, um, uh, uh, the, the men and the women who took part in the Long March, those who survived, only 18,000 of the 120,000 who set out arrive at Yenna. Now, they don't all, it's not that they all died. Uh, uh, some did, many, many did. Uh, they were killed by, by nationalist raids, by bombing, uh, in combat. They died of disease. Uh, some uh, fell away or they couldn't complete the journey. Uh, but uh, but this, this core of about 18,000 uh, men and women struggled through and finally arrived at Yan'an in October of 36. Obviously, to have been a survivor, to have been someone who made it through the long march, this was a mark of heroism, a badge of heroism that, that lasted the rest of their lives. Um, and and uh, uh, still, still something that, uh, that is noted in, in people's uh, uh, biographies and, and sort of people are very proud of in their family heritage. It's in the course of the long march uh, uh, that... Uh, uh, the column stops at a place called Zunyi. Zunyi is in the southwest in Guizhou province. And there, for a few days, they stop to rest. And uh, they, the leadership gathers to talk about their experience, to talk about their, uh, uh, you know, what's happened, the, the, the decision to leave Jiangxi, where they're going, what they're going to do, what the direction of the party should be. And the Zunyi conference is critical because it's at the Zunyi conference that Mao Zedong is selected to be chairman of the Communist Party. Up until this point, he had been one of the collective leaders, uh, along with Zhu De, Zhou Enlai, and a number of others. But it's at Sunyi that the party endorses his perspective 
on the revolution, his perspective on relying on the agricultural proletariat, building a socialist revolution based on land reform and the transformation of China's existing actual conditions. Uh, what what you know we we still today talk about socialism with, with Chinese characteristics and things like that. That stems from these insights of Mao that that the the theoretical insights of Marxism and Leninism need to be applied creatively in the actual material circumstances of China. And so that is embraced. Zhou Enlai, who many people had thought might emerge as, as the ultimate leader of the party, uh, Zhou Enlai supports uh, Mao Zedong uh, quite strongly at Zunyi. And it's from this point forward that, uh, that we can really call him Chairman Mao. Uh, and his guidance then is what uh, will lead the revolution forward once they get to Yan'an and, and on down from there. That's uh, as far as I'm going to go today. Uh, Comrade Sheila is going to pick up the story from there. But first, let's uh, let's have a little time for some uh, some Q and A. And Sheila, if you want to join in on this as well, that would be great. There we are. Okay, comrades, what do you got for us? Thank you so much for that presentation, Ken. Um, so now we do have some time for Q and A. We have just about 15 minutes, which obviously is not much time. And we have a lot of great questions. So we're gonna do our best to um, answer as many as we can uh, during these 15 minutes. And whatever we can't answer, you can either directly reach Ken at Ken at khammond at nmsu.edu. Or uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna compile all these unanswered questions and uh, answer them and put them up on liberationschool.org. So with that, um, we have a lot of great questions, Ken. So I'm gonna give you maybe three or four at a time, okay? Sure. Awesome. So the first one I have here is, what does it mean that the Guamindang organized itself as a Leninist party? My second question for you, why weren't the nationalists initially so strong in the south of China? And my third one here is, so why was the CCP kind of unprepared for the repression it was to suffer in 1927? Meaning, were they armed at this point? Were they unarmed? Um, and if they were disarmed or unarmed, uh, was one of the factors in making that decision, um, was that made in the interest of unity with the Guomindang? And what is the significance of this issue? We can start with those. Well, uh, uh, to say that they organized themselves or they were reorganized as a Leninist party, you know, uh, the, 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 the model of the Leninist party, uh, the model of the, uh, uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, Revolutionary Party uh, was developed, you know, by, by Comrade Lenin. And, and basically the idea is that it's a party uh, founded on the principles of democratic centralism. It's a party in which uh, there is there is there is debate and and democratic participation on the part of all the members of the party, uh, and yet uh, uh, as decisions are made, when decisions are made by the party as a as a collective, uh, those uh, uh, members of the party are subject to party discipline, which means that uh, when the party makes a decision, we we work with that uh, with that policy. Uh, it may be opened up for debate again in the future uh, in the in the sort of theory practice theory dialectic, but. But, uh, but the, the idea of a disciplined revolutionary party operating on principles of democratic centralism, um, there's a few other minor attributes that go along with that, but, but that's the core of it. And, and 
that was really important for the nationalists because while Sun Yat-sen was a revolutionary visionary and a, and, a, and a great nationalist activist, he wasn't much of a practical organizer in terms of the administration of the Nationalist Party. So when these comrades from the Communist International helped him out, the Nationalist Party became a more effective and a more efficient uh, uh, body. Right. Uh, so it was important for them to to redo that. And of course, the irony in some ways is that the Nationalist Party that that still uh, plays a, a big role in the politics in Taiwan is still a Leninist party. It's uh, it's it's kind of crazy. But uh, but organizationally, it still functions along with, with that same model. Now, as, as to why the nationalists were strong down south, remember that Sun Yat-sen himself was from uh, Guangdong province. He was born there. Uh, his family was important down there. He had a lot of connections down there. And many of the nationalist leaders uh, had uh, uh, important uh, um, uh, uh, relationships with, with, uh, with the south. So um, when uh, after 1912, after Yuan Shikai had seized power and made himself president, and uh, Sun Yat-sen was marginalized, uh, that he, that's basically where he went to, to sort of regroup, and then that he, he built that up as a nationalist base of operations. So it's a very, it's a very practical uh, 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 you know, set of circumstances that lead to the, to the South being that, um, uh, that focal point. As for the question of, of, of the level of preparation for the events of, of April 27, um, the situation in Shanghai was, was extremely complex. Shanghai was, on the one hand, it was the most industrialized city in China. It had uh, uh, all kinds of uh, factories and, and productive uh, facilities of one type or another. It had a, a significant working class population. There were trade unions. Of course, the Communist Party was active there. But the political situation, the structural situation in Shanghai was that Shanghai was um, uh, under foreign control. There was what's called the International Settlement, which was dominated by the British and the Americans. There was the French Concession, which was a huge area on the south side of town run by the French. Uh, uh, and, and so uh, foreign political power dominated in Shanghai, which had, on the one hand, it meant that, uh, 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 I mean, one reason the party is founded there in 21 was that it was not subject to the legal authority of the Chinese state. Um, you know, that's part of imperialism and extraterritoriality. Ironically, that worked to the benefit of the revolutionaries in some circumstances. Um, but it also meant that, of course, the, the, the imperialist powers were hostile to the communists. And so, uh, you know, the, the, it, it wasn't legal for, for them to be armed. So they couldn't be sort of overtly armed. Uh, some were, of course, but, uh, uh, you know, there were workers, militias and things like that, but they had to be very circumspect about that. Um, and I think the worst part of it, though, was that, that um, uh, you know, this had been the United Front. It had been working. Uh, there were leftists within the, the nationalist leadership uh, who were close to the communist leadership. And I think that, uh, that uh, in a sense, uh, they, they, they got sucker punched. They, they, they failed to understand how determined Chiang Kai-shek was to sort of unilaterally lash out and, and break with them. Uh, so they got, uh, you know, they got caught off guard. They had been led to believe 
that a, an insurrection within the city would would be the prelude to the triumphant entry of the the army, uh, uh, you know, as part of the northern expedition, and that then the the two parties together would would find a path forward for Shanghai. But instead, they launched this insurrection. That served as an excuse for the imperialist police, for the, uh, the police in the Chinese part of the city, and for the crime gangs to come out and, and, uh, and attack uh, the, the, the party activists and, and leadership. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, and, and the, and the nationalist army, instead of coming in and helping and defending them, stayed out and allowed that massacre to take place. Okay. Other questions? Thanks, Ken. And um, yes, I do have some other questions for you. First one here, what impact did imperialist powers have on the national front? And then a few more. Um, were the rank and file soldiers of the Guomindang at all sympathetic to the CCP in 1927? And I can give you one more. Um, so when did the Com in turn stop supporting the Guomindang? So because for a long time they supported both the Guomindang and uh, the Communist Party. So at what yeah, point did they a, stop supporting them? That, that's a tricky one. Um, yeah, the uh, well, let, let's think about that. We can take those in a sense almost as a as a package. Um, the nationalists, yeah. See, this this is what complicates things because. The United Front and the Nationalist Party, you know, the Nationalists positioned themselves as an anti-imperialist party, and they wanted to, to and, and I think sincerely, certainly under Sun Yat-sen, but even under Chiang Kai-shek, they wanted to some extent to use the Nationalist movement to push back against the dominance of the Western powers, and of course, uh, of Japan increasingly as well. Um, so uh, the, the Western powers were not initially at least not friendly to the nationalists, but of course they saw them as preferable to the communists, right? Um, when Chiang Kai-shek begins to emerge as the leader, uh, and especially by April of 27, when he moves against the communists, then international capital starts to, to say, well, this guy's not so bad, you know? Um, and, and, and then you get a very complicated set of relationships. The, the Soviet Union, continues to support Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist movement, honestly, all the way down until 1948. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the Communist International and, and, and Stalin, under Stalin's leadership, the Soviet Union viewed the situation in China in a very particular way. And this gets into, I mean, this is, this is influenced by the conflict between Stalin and Trotsky, uh, uh, you know, Trotsky had a very much more radical revolutionary line on China, uh, uh, but but in some ways, uh, almost because of that, Stalin and his uh, uh, followers uh, uh, really dug in on this idea of China needed a bourgeois nationalist revolution. And flawed as they were, the Nationalist Party was going to be the, the the force to pursue that. And so Soviet Union provided the nationalists with assistance all the way down, as I say, all the way until 1948. Um, while also, of course, providing some assistance and some support to the communists, sort of, you know, pursuing uh, a very complex uh, balancing act from, from the Soviet perspective. Um, 
That, of course, meant that the nationalists could navigate a very complicated international line, and, and they did that. They got support. At one point in the 30s, the nationalists were getting more and more support from Nazi Germany. Uh, so they were getting support from Nazi Germany and from the Soviet Union at the same time. Chiang Kai-shek was fairly sophisticated at, at manipulating the imperialist powers uh, in order to enhance his own uh, position, so long as he didn't go so far as to actually try to curtail the economic interests of, of the main powers, the British, the Americans, and like that. Yes, absolutely. I have one more for you. Sure. If that's if you're okay with it. Um, yeah. What was the class makeup of the Communist Party in this era leading up to the Long March? Were they already drawing from the peasant class or were they were these industrial workers proletarians? Well, the whole point of, of the period after 1927-1928 was the overture to, uh, to agricultural proletarians. So this was the idea, was to... to to recognize, to conceptualize uh, the mass of the Chinese people who lived on the land, who worked on the land, who didn't necessarily, for the vast majority of them, own land themselves, which is what distinguishes them from just petty bourgeois small proprietors, right? That uh, especially agricultural tenants, landless people, uh, uh, day wage laborers, all these kinds of groupings. And, and, and the party developed very sophisticated analyses of, of circumstances in, in, in localities where they, were, where they were active, identifying, you know, who were the big landowners. I mean, when we, when we uh, look at land reform a little later, you know, we can, we can talk about some of this as well. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, the party increasingly uh, becomes a, a party with its primary base in uh, agricultural uh, society. Uh, the industrial working class remains important. They continue to organize in the cities. They continue to organize clandestinely in the factories. But of course, uh, the, the nationalists uh, controlled the cities and the secret police and the, and the organized uh, crime gangs that worked with the nationalists were vicious and brutal in their suppression of, of the urban, uh, of the party and of trade unions and all this. It was, you know, it was a... Uh, it was a, a very hostile environment. So uh, uh, the, 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 the agricultural component, the peasant component of the party grows and grows and grows during this period. And, and certainly from the Jiangxi period on, that's, uh, that's very much the case. I have to, Do you want to add time for all this? No, I mean, you handled all those questions great. Um, I guess the one thing I, I wanted to say tangentially related to the Long March is like, you know, it was a obviously very historic period in the revolution. Um, and a lot of the people that played a huge part in the long march too were, you know, the, the role of the women, you know, women played a huge role in the long march. And when you read the stories about the long march of these women um, joining the, the, the um, you know, the movement and joining the long march was like their only salvation from their reality, you know, from arranged marriages, from being enslaved to their in-laws, you know, just, just the, the brutal um, misogyny that women uh, ha faced in China. So, yeah, I mean, I, I encourage folks to read more about the Long March and read more about the stories about the Long March, because it wasn't, it's not like they were just walking an easy road, like they had to wade through, like, you know, unpaved, uh, uncharted territory. 
Awesome. Thank you, comrades. So unfortunately, uh, we don't have any more time for Q&A for this portion uh, of the presentations. Um, however, like I said earlier, you can reach out to uh, Ken at khammond at nmsu.edu. That's K-H-A-M-M-O-N-D at nmsu.edu. And then some of these unanswered questions, which are great questions, by the way, uh, we will uh, be creating answers to them and putting them up on liberationschool.org. So you can check the, the answers out to these questions there.